This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Well, welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, all things PEDS SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional category with emphasis on clinical supervision. 
In that light, we have joining us today the one and only Miss Juliana Miller, Clinical Instructor and Director of External Clinical Practicum at the University of South Carolina. This sweet friend of mine and I have had numerous conversations about what it actually means to be a good clinical supervisor. For a lot of us, we remember the tough emotional and sometimes those ethical dilemmas that we faced as student clinicians. And hopefully, hopefully that inspired us to pay it forward and positively shape the next generations of pediatric SLPs, OTs, and therapists. Well, times have changed since we were clinician students, um, and Juliana is here to help us set supervision straight. All right, so Miss Juliana, can you uh, lay it on me and tell me a little bit about you? Well, I have um, been in the field for quite a while now. I graduated from um, Texas Tech Health Sciences Center with my undergrad degree and worked for a year as an SLPA. Okay. Then I went on to Baylor for graduate school and um, graduated from there in uh, 97, 90, <laughs> end of 96, start of 97. Um, so it's been a while now. Um, I've worked in skilled nursing, rehab hospitals. Um, I contracted with schools and with private entities. So I've, I've there's almost no setting that I haven't been in, Perfect. which has helped me a lot as, as I've um, taken this career forward, placing stu graduate students in clinical practicum sites. So I work for University of South Carolina. Um, I'll try to keep everything I say pretty general, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> not specific just to us, but um, just for some background, USC has an on-campus program, a traditional program, and then a distance learning program. So we have students that are local here um, in South Carolina, and then we have students that live all over the United States. So that helps a lot with um, kind of knowing what things are of the country. Okay. All right. Beautiful. So now you and I, this is a long-term process. You and I have talked about this off and on since um, that article came out in the ASHA leader about uh, university students feeling intimidated by their clinical supervisors, that they weren't able to voice the concerns. And this is also an outgrowth of the changes that ASHA is coming down through um, our continuing education requirements. And so this is twofold. How can we make our supervisors better and how can we build our students up and give them a voice. So can you take me from the university side first uh, and explain what exactly y'all have to go through on your end to place students and what is being required of the, um, the supervisors from a continuing ed perspective? Sure. So <clears throat> it's, it's pretty challenging for university and not just with our profession but really with um, multiple professions it's it's seen with um, psych physical therapy psychology nursing um, that it's just getting harder and harder to get external practicum sites so supervisors are really really needed um, and not just any supervisor but really quality supervision people that um, really want to help train the next generation of clinicians. It's really, really important. Um, in order for that to happen, you've got to have a, a site that's willing. So is, is the 
administrative staff willing? Is the supervisor willing? Um, there has to be an affiliation agreement in most cases. Can you can you um, enlighten? So sorry, can you explain what the affiliation agreement looks like? Because when I started doing this, I didn't know that that was an actual legal document. So. Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, most medical sites want an affiliation agreement because it really spells out that you are working um, with a student. And most students are, um, are uh, exempt from licensure laws. That's why they're able to you know, touch a patient, even though they aren't licensed to practice. And they're basically practicing under the supervision of whichever person is supervising them. And so it, it lays out the fact that this is a student. Um, in, um, in our case, we provide liability insurance for our students. I think some other schools liability insurance for themselves, but it's just sort of, it just lays out what is expected on both sides and just kind of, you know, indicates this is a student, they're not, um, entitled to say, you know, em, em, uh, employment protections and things like that. They're not going to get paid. It just kind of lays everything out. So everyone's on the same page. Okay. okay. Um, <clears throat> so um, once you have um, willing sites and willing supervisors, um, then it's, you know, getting the student onboarded. Usually there's, um, you know, they want, copies of liability insurance, they want um, immunization records, things like that. Every single site and, and um, supervisor has different ways that you ask for placements, different ways of onboarding. Um, so it, it can be challenging for the people like me that might be doing 300 placements a year and have literally hundreds of different people that, that they can ask, but you have to jump through all different hoops for every single one of those places. So it can be a real challenge at times. After hearing it from your side, I feel really, really bad for my, um, <laughs> my placement director and coordinator back at GMU because I <laughs> probably a pistol. So if you're listening, um, Teresa and Andrea, thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> and I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, so a little bit of honesty <laughs> embedded in functional. Okay, so we had um, at our state conference the last two years, they have talked about how ASH is pushing down this new CEU requirement that if you want to continue to be a, a supervisor, that you have to take a certain amount of continuing education credits. What? That's okay. correct. The current requirement is that you have to have C's and you have to have competency in the area of practice that you plan to supervise in. So in other words, if you're planning on supervising a student working with, say, adults in a medical setting, then you need to be also competent in working with adults in a medical setting. Um, but in 2020, um, there are some proposed changes, and those are going to be that the super has to have had their C's for at least nine months. Okay. Um, they have to have two hours of professional development in the area of um, a certificate or 
two hours of supervision um, in their area of certification. So if they're a speech language pathologist, two hours of supervision um, training. Um, and then, of course, what's not changing is is um, they have to observe at least 25% of the time that um, with the students that are seeing their patients, at least 25% of the total time with that patient um, periodically throughout the whole rotation. So in other words, you couldn't just watch them for the first 25% of their rotation and then never watch them again. Okay, so that needs to be spread out throughout. Now, I've I've heard horror stories. I saw the Facebook posting after the ASHA leader of uh, students onboarding for a week and then the clinical supervisor dipping out for the basically rest of the practicum and trying to pass off that, oh, well, I souped them in the beginning. That doesn't count. They have to be there throughout the duration of the 10, 12, 16-week time period. Right. Correct. Correct. Um, someone with C's always has to be on site in case they need to be consulted. Uh-huh. But um, but twenty that twenty five percent does have to take place throughout the practicum. And let's keep in mind that's a bare minimum. So that always has to be adjusted to match the student's capability. So if the student needs more supervision and more support in order to provide the services that are going to fit the needs of the patient or the client or the student in whichever setting you happen to be in, then that has to be provided. That has to be adjusted. Now, I heard cases, I've heard cases that where the student um, onboards for a brief period of time and then very quickly thereafter, um, and this particular incident occurred at like a pediatric outpatient clinic where the um, clinic started assigning patients individually to that student at simultaneously while the supervisor was seeing students. Um, so, or patients. So it's basically two different caseloads and they were billing off of the student while they were also billing off of the supervisor. And I was confused and taken aback. Is that allowed? Is that a thing? Help. Well, anything that a student does is is under the supervision of their supervisor. Okay. So um, it's there. Every state has different rules about how how students can be integrated into therapy. Okay. There are there are some states that um, Medicaid won't allow a student to be involved in to any degree at all, um, and Medicare requires that if a student is involved with Part A, um, the supervisor must be present and running the session one hundred percent of the time. So the the rules about how things can be billed vary based on who the pay source is and what the setting is. But um, if we're talking about just sort of in general, like can can I bill for services um, that were provided by a student? Um, the the student is not billing. It's it's um, supervisor. the supervisor is billing. So. Um, you know, the supervisor, it's, it's 
on the supervisor's responsibility to look up for their particular state and with that particular pay source what the provision for students are. And usually that's going to be in their contract that they have with the the entity that they're billing. So the insurance company, um, their Medicaid, um, but in general, it's duly billing. The, the supervisor does need to keep in mind that that student is working off of their license. So anything that they do that's against the rules um, could get them in trouble with their own licensure. So trust, but verify. Trust, but verify. I like that. Always a good policy. Mm-hmm. You, you, you hear the Navy and Army in my bones, trust, yeah. but verify. <laughs> Okay. It's a really good resource for questions like this. These are these kind of questions come up all the time. Okay. And a really good resource for that is on ASHA. If you just Google um, ASHA student supervision FAQs, it comes to you you can go to this page on ASHA. That's all all the questions that people typically ask for for in general, for in school settings, for in healthcare settings. Um, where they can find out links to the the kinds of answers that they need to find. Perfect. Okay. Now I, okay, switch. I went to Shav, um, the Speech Hearing Association of Virginia. I was there in March for their 60th anniversary um, convention. And when I went, uh, there was a supervisor doing a Q and a on supervision at their state association conference. And she was talking about um, reimbursement and um, there is a misunderstanding amongst students. A lot of students think that clinical supervisors are paid to soup them. And I was like, no, but we're not. And one lady said she worked for a, actually a, a pretty large um, a nursing home, I guess they have like contracts in the nursing homes. And she said her company gave them bonuses if they did do supervision and uh, which I was kind of surprised by. But as a general rule of thumb, supervisors are not paid, correct? As a general rule, external practicum supervisors are not paid. There are some um there are some exceptions to that. There are some universities that say they have um, a hospital affiliated with their university and mm-hmm. they actually have university staff working in that hospital. So they, they get a salary as part of their job. In most cases, um, certainly the, the people that I'm calling and begging. Um, <laughs> I, I do feel I'm, like... I, I remember that conversation. <laughs> I would love to give them money, but that's that's just not an option for, for most schools. Um, and actually, this past um, this past ASHA, uh, we did a um, a survey with a with several other universities where we kind of um, pooled our resources and sent out a survey to lots and lots of supervisors, kind of asking stuff like like that. Um, and in most cases. Um, the the universities that I was talking to, they they didn't have a budget for for paying supervisors either. Um, there is, I'm aware of uh, at least one um, 
skilled nursing staffing company that did decide um, not just for speech, but for PT, OT, and speech that they were going to start charging um, for students to be able to come. I believe it was $500 for a part-time placement per semester and $1,000 for a full-time placement per semester. And um, boy, was that an interesting ASHA convention when yeah. I was speaking to um, people with my position, we were um, we were all just like, well, there's just no way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was a big bummer because that was a really, really big and very well run um, company. But we just now we can't use them because we don't we don't have the budget for that. For most supervisors, I think um, most of them are aware that we won't be able to pay them any money. Um, Lots of places, including us, try to provide other things like free CEUs, um, taking graduate level courses at a reduced rate, um, things but of that nature. On on my end, when I take a student, I do it because I need help. I need, and not in the sense with my patients, but I need other clinicians out there treating the kind of medically fragile and complex patients that I treat. So I view me taking students and molding and shaping and like basically word vomiting nerd facts at them for a semester as an opportunity to have that skill set out there to send patients to. So it's peace of mind because we're aging. I have children. My children will have children. If we don't pay it forward, then Who's going to treat us when, I mean, dementia runs in my family. I know I need a speech pathologist in my future, hopefully not for another 40 or 50 years, but it's, it's the paying it forward aspect that means the most, not the other reasons, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's people like you that make up the bulk of the supervisors that we try to work with. And most of those supervisors do it because they want to pay it forward. Someone did it for them because they want to have a relationship with the university, because they want to hear from their students what they're learning in class. Um, I love picking their brains. What are you learning? Because it's always something. Now, what are the the requirements that you look for from supervisors? What are the skills that you're looking for so that you know this is an – this will be a good learning experience for your students. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> when I'm, when I'm doing um, placements, it's really kind of like a big puzzle for me. Okay. We have these students and they have um, a set of skills and experiences that they have to have in order to meet the um, our department's requirements for graduation. So they've got to have, um, you know, ASHA requires that students have the 375 hours of um, direct contact practicum. And, but we actually break that down into a certain number of evaluations with PEDS, evaluations with adults. Um, you know, you have to show that your students have gotten experience across the big nine, across the lifespan, um, with um, a variety of socioeconomic statuses and and um, ulti- other multicultural um, uh, 
experiences so that they don't come out with just, you know, only schools or only a nursing home. They've got to get a variety of experiences. Sets of skills are laid out by ASHA as requirements. So when I'm looking at a, a particular student, I'm looking at what types of experiences have they already had and what do we need to build upon in order to, number one, get them what they need to graduate, and number two, um, have them be a well-rounded clinician, and number three, help them get to where they're trying to go. So once we've gotten their basic requirements out of the way, what do they want to do with their life? Do they want to work with peds? Do they want to work with adults? And what kind of setting do they want to work? Because I I really want to help prepare them to be able to walk into their CF on the first day and feel um, really comfortable with what they're with what they're trying to do. So that from that's how it goes from the um, from the student perspective. When I'm talking to somebody who might be a potential supervisor, I'm trying to find out, um, you know, how long have they been doing this? What kind of caseload do they have? Will there be opportunities for the student to um, have interprofessional interactions with, say, PT or OT or nursing or, you know, what kind of interactions are they going to have an opportunity to, to, um, to have? What kind of caseload are they going to be working with? Um, and, you know, what's, what's that supervisor's teaching style? Because I want to be able to match the supervisor's teaching style with the student's learning style. Because, you know, not all of us are the same and not all of us work in the same way. And we have supervisors <laughs> that are kind of hand-holding kind of supervisors. And then we have sort of, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to quiz you on the floor and ask you problem-solving questions kind of people. And, and not everyone is going to be the best match for somebody else. So it's, it's really important to have that. You, your poor brain, I hurt for you. <laughs> okay, so I've gotten, um, I mean, I've taken a, some supervision classes in the last two years because, you know, I torture your humans. And I want to make sure that in the process of doing that, I, I do a better job. And it's different from when I was a grad student. When I was a grad student, you sank or you swam and you did as you were told and it was it was kind of ferocious i the absolute most challenging supervisor that i had made me cry multiple times every single week but i learned the most from that woman and she's the reason i became a supervisor because i wanted to help pay it forward but do it in a more positive maybe warm and fuzzy aspect but one of the mm -hmm. things that um, I took away from all the different classes that I've gone to over the last couple of years is that we have to, as a supervisor, recognize when the feedback that we're delivering to the student is either falling on deaf ears, um, hurting them emotionally, and we need to recognize where at a baseline, our emotional intelligence is and where the student's emotional intelligence is and kind of make that blend. And I, 
I have personally struggled with that in the past. I mean, I know you of all people know that, but how do we, what are some ways to troubleshoot that, to give feedback to the students to help them grow? But if our verbal feedback is not hitting the mark, what do we need to do on our end? So I think you brought up a really good point and that I've, I've heard many, many say, which is that they hadn't really gotten any specific um, education about supervising. So they just kind of, they tried to either emulate supervisors that they really loved or tried to not do what they didn't like about some of their supervisors. And um, so I think that's really a common thing. And um, ASHA is addressing that by actually having uh, programs begin to teach about supervision during graduate school. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I think that'll help a lot um, as students graduate from from now on. This is actually, this took um, effect this past August 2017. Okay. So um, students should be graduating now with with at least some knowledge of supervision, which I'm kind of excited about. (laughs) And then, and then in addition to that, there will be um, the continuing ed requirement of the two hours um, once, once graduated. But um, so my view on supervision is this, that um, you've got students that um, need to learn a certain set of skills. Uh, And you know what those skills are because that's what you're grading them on. And so this is really not that different from what we do every day when when we have patients or clients or students um, in in a setting. What are we doing? We're looking at that client or that patient and we're seeing what skills do they have and what skills do they not have and what do I need to do in order to get them the skills that they need. So that's really not that different when you're working with a student except for presumably most of the students that you're going to be working with don't have a disorder to work around. Okay. In fact, most of the students that enter programs these days are quite brilliant. That's how they got into a very, very competitive uh, environment for getting into graduate school. So um, that's what I try to do is to look at what skills um, they need and then help them. I really like I like it when supervisors are able to do that in a very formal way. So let's say um, you're working on, um, oh, um, communicating appropriately with a family member as you're making a referral or um, talking about how an evaluation came out. And and you can tell the student, this is this is what I'd like to see you do. I'd like to see you do X, Y, Z. I'd like you to um, introduce yourself, remind them of your role, remind them that you did what the tests were and what they measure and what the results were and things like that. And then afterwards, kind of giving them a... Um, a, a a feedback sandwich where you do at least one positive thing and then talk about at least one negative thing that they could use to improve upon and then another positive thing. And then saying, how are we going to 
How are we going to do that? How are we going to make this change and have the student actually problem solve about what they need to do differently so that when you go in to talk to the next family about the next patient, you really have a set thing that they are, that they know they're supposed to be doing when they walk in there. Okay. So Um, in that light, in your feedback sandwich analogy, mm -hmm. I have seen a significant increase um, in the students that I've received having, uh, for lack of a better phrase, baseline anxiety disorders, baseline nerves, um, to the point that I feel as though even when I give positive feedback, they immediately take any, they, they take it and run with it and go down a dark, scary corridor. <laughs> So at what point in time do I as a clinician say, okay, this, um, this, there's a breakdown here. What are my options? Can I reach out to you and your role? How, what do I do to help when it just is going south? And when do I help? When do I seek help? I should say. Right. So, um, I am, I would love, love, love for every single supervisor who is struggling for any reason, whether it's um, they're having trouble getting onto the program that we use to document clinical training, or whether it's, um, you know, they have a question about billing, or whether they have a question about, um, you know, what what skills should the student have by now, or or any kind of concern, like about anxiety or something like that, um, I would love for them to contact me. Chances are, if you're seeing an issue, we have seen an issue too. And we may have thought that it's all okay and need to know that it's not. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's a tough situation to be in when you're a faculty member because everything about a student is protected by FERPA. Just as students um, in an elementary school have um, FERPA protecting their privacy, those those same privacy laws do um, apply to graduate students in in a university. So there's and always FERPA, a limit. To- for, for people that don't know, FERPA is like patient or student confidentiality, like HIPAA is patient confidentiality. Correct. Okay. So has worked in a school, but FERPA is just the same is is a law that protects the privacy of students, just as HIPAA is the law that protects the privacy of um, patients. And so, um, you know, our policy is that if a student is is struggling to the point that we don't think they're going to be successful in an outside practicum, we don't send them to practicum. Um, Part of the rules for us um, is it's in just about every contract we have is that if we don't think a student is appropriate for a site, we're not going to send them. Perfect. And that's an ethical thing too, is that um, you always have to have the needs of the patient first and foremost in your mind. And if we don't think that a student is able to provide appropriate services under the supervision of an SLP, then we wouldn't 
we wouldn't send them in the first place. But we may think everything is fine, and that might not be the case. So it is really, really important for um, a supervisor, if they think that there's their student is having a problem, whether it be um, a clinical preparation thing or, a, or an interpersonal thing or anxiety or whatever it happens to be, um, I would say first thing is to contact the person that set up the practicum so that they can intervene. And have that sure. panel. Yeah. So um, supervisors have a variety of things that they typically um, that they typically ask about. One is what you just asked about, like how do you how do you provide feedback? Um, <clears throat> Sometimes it's it's how do I have enough time to provide feedback when I'm when I've got you know ninety five percent productivity requirement. Um, that's a real that's a real concern from the supervisor's perspective. Like I want to help that student grow, but I'm swamped. I'm you know drowning in paperwork. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, different schools have different ways of doing paperwork. Um, quite a few universities are using, um, and we use it too, a, 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 a internet-based um, program called Calypso, which is definitely less time-consuming than the old paper way. Yes, it is. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I did not enjoy whipping out the calculator and, and you know, adding up 15-minute increments of things. I'm, I'm not no. much of an enough person. So, so that, was, uh, that was a real blessing to, to have something that does that. And, you know, there's other um, internet-based documentation um, programs out there too, but as you kind of get used to them, then, um, you know, they become easier over time, but definitely that's, um, that can be a concern. Okay. All right. So I personally don't do a good job of giving written feedback. I, I have a document staring at me in the corner of my desktop while we're talking that's a working draft on how I can provide written feedback to students. Um, <laughs> thank you, Radford University, for that one. And um, I just, I, I don't, I don't get there. But what, what I've started doing that seems to yield better results for me is at the beginning of the semester, I take my students for coffee and say, okay, how do you learn? What's your learning style? Help me understand that. And then I make that a priority mental note. Um, I know some other clinicians that I greatly admire and adore and have girl crush on because their brains are wonderful and their souls match it. Um, they do a variation of that. Like their first day, they have them for lunch. Um, if you're a supervisor and you don't have time for that, what's a way that they can build a bridge to seek to understand? Can they contact their students before their first date to drop them an email? Or is that university dependent? Or how does that work? It probably depends on the university. But I would think that in most cases, um, it's fine to talk with the student beforehand. Um, and in our particular case, um, we have lots of places that want to um, that want to interview the student before they come. Um, some of them, it, they don't even necessarily call it an interview. They just kind of want to have a chance to chat with the student and make sure that 
what the student thinks they're coming for is what they're actually going to get. Um, and, and you and I had a conversation like that when you first started taking students where, you know, your caseload is pretty complex and you just wanted students to know, you know, they weren't going to be coming in and getting, you know, hours. That's, that's not what you work on with your kiddos. So, um, you know, for somebody that really wanted like something that was akin to a school or something like that, like that's not what you provide. And so that wouldn't have been a good match, but um, there are so many ways to um, provide feedback and kind of get to know the student that, that you're working with. And, and what you mentioned, just sitting down with them and chatting with them about it is a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, I've had um, different supervisors who um, have had, you know, like a little questionnaire, things like that. Like um, get to know you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And students, you know, I've I read this survey once where they asked students and supervisors. They asked the students, "Well, how much feedback do you want to get?" And they had um, different things they could click on to indicate they wanted that. And of course, they clicked on everything. They wanted <laughs> feedback, written and oral feedback after every session, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, at the beginning of the week, at the end of the week, at the beginning oh of the semester, semester. You know, it would just be like constant, constant feedback. Whereas supervisors were like, Oh, it'd be nice if I could just give them feedback mid-semester and at the end. And and <laughs> that's quite a continuum. Somewhere in the middle is where we need to be. Um, I, I think oh. that for like a formal evaluation, most supervisors, um, especially those in external practicum sites where they have 95% productivity, they can't do a formal evaluation of all the things every day or every week even they 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 don't have enough time to do that but they can give specific verbal feedback they might have just like sort of a little cheat sheet where they not jot things down over time um you know i don't think the students necessarily feel like they have to have written feedback after every session but they do want to have a, a sense of you know how am how am i doing what can i do to improve um, and they want more than that was fine. I'll tell you if you're doing something wrong. They don't want to just example. not do something wrong. They want to do it right. And they want to have more than one way to get things done. Um, you know, my um, my colleague, Hiram McDade, and he tells this really funny story about how he was a graduate student and um his supervisor had told him to do something a certain way and, and um, his, his patient came in and he proceeded to not do it the way his supervisor had suggested. He did it Hiram's way and the kid did great. <laughs> and after the session, he was expecting a big pat on the back. And instead the supervisor was like, why didn't you do what I told you to do? And he said, well, because I didn't need to do it that way. The kid was doing great. And the supervisor was like, yeah, Hiram's way worked this time. But if you don't learn how to do it my way, what are you going to do when Hiram's way doesn't work? You need multiple ways of being able to interact with the child in order to be able to change what you're doing to meet their needs. So I think, you know, every student has opportunities to learn 
lots of things in lots of ways. And, and hopefully um, they can get a variety of ways of different of getting feedback so that um, so that they can do that. Awesome. Well, all right. So I had a question and then I got lost in imagining a young Hiram and he cracks me up and I love him. And Martha, so like, <laughs> there goes that question and squirrel. Okay. So, uh, all right. So my takeaway points are um, from First, thank you. I always sit in awe of all the moving puzzle pieces that you have because somehow you always manage to send the right student to the right place where they get not just the academic, not just, you know, the bare bones, but you actually do a beautiful job of sculpting them into a clinician. And honey, that that's a gift. So who offer you? Um, you know, I love the girls that you've sent me as I get all misty eyed. And I'm really glad that the people listening can't see that. <laughs> but, um, but uh, practicums are changing. The requirements are changing. Ash is now requiring students to learn about supervisions while they're students. Ash is requiring um, ongoing supervision um, clinical training effective 2020. So it's two hours of training in supervision effective 2020 in order to, and that's two hours total out of our um, 16. No, I'm sorry, out of our 30 hours, correct? Mm -hmm. And then, sorry, folks, 16 is unique to South Carolina, not ASHA. ASHA is the 30. Um, and that we need to, as a supervisor, be dynamic, offer a continuum of feedback, verbal or written, not every 32 seconds <laughs> and not once a semester, mm -hmm. but somewhere in between. And when we have concerns about our students struggling, uh, whether it be um, thinking on their feet, um, emotionally, are they prepared? Can they handle this? Um, or their demeanor, dress code, the basics. Um, we have you, you, we have the um, university, the college to reach back to, reach out to that person, express these concerns when that feedback directly to the student is breaking down. But mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the first line of defense is just to talk to the student themselves about it. And mm -hmm. you can just be very honest and say, you know, I I see whatever it is you see. I see, you know, taking this really hard, getting teary-eyed. And, you know, some students will tell you, that's just me. I cry at, you know, cheery commercials. Like, that's, just, <laughs> that's just me having stress and, and don't worry about it. And, and other students that, you know, they're going to break down and say, well, you know, my boyfriend broke up with me or... I've been really struggling in school. I'm afraid I'm going to fail out or, or, or any number of things. Uh -huh. But um, if you can reach out to that university person, um, there are so many times when the student contacts me and the supervisor contacts me and neither knows that, they, uh, that the other has talked to me and they never will. <laughs> but I give them both, ad both advice and, and it's able to get worked out without... Um, without too much stress, but it is important to, 
to, you know, just kind of be open and honest with the student about what you're seeing and that you're there to help them and that you, that you, that you want to help them. And, um, and, you know, I, I really appreciate your kind words, but it's, it's not just me. It's really the entire faculty of people that helps students grow and improve over time. And it really does take a village. It takes, it takes the whole faculty here or at, or at any university to get an undergraduate student turned into a CF candidate. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that village is, and we wouldn't be able to train our clinicians without without people like you who are willing to um, give their time and their effort to those students. And we really, really appreciate it. On behalf of every single person that's the me at another university, we really, really do appreciate those supervisors that help our students in that way. So, so for all of you lovely ladies and gents out there listening, um, be kind to our students that they need us. They need us to build them up because that when you and I talked about that first ASHA leader, like a year and a half ago, I just, it's our job to build, pay this forward, build them up, be kind. As a former student once said, build a bridge, <laughs> build a bridge. <laughs> so yeah, let's I give them a bridge. I have found that, um, you know, the the typical student right now is um, is a millennial, mm-hmm. and millennials get a lot of um, kind of negative press. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and and there are definitely you know intergenerational um, things that that impact people's interaction with each other. Mm-hmm. But let's remember, like, not everything that we see millennials do has anything to do with when they were born. It has a lot to do with them just being young, mm-hmm. you know, and just being young and inexperienced. And a lot of them have never, you know, been in a work situation before. And they just don't, they just don't know the context sometimes. And, um, you know, part of being a SLP is being a good communicator. You know, we should be experts in communication if we're an SLP. And so much of everything that happens on site that's a problem can be fixed with good communication. And um, sometimes they just need the dots drawn really close to each other. Um, But I think for the most part, the students really want to grow and succeed and be... um, what the supervisor wants them to be and they just maybe need to be shown how. Okay. So if somebody's listening and they um, are not currently a supervisor, what do they need to do mm-hmm. if they, maybe we lit a match and under somebody and they want to do this. So what is, what's the next step for them? Sure. So, um, I mean, I have supervisors that, that contact us and, um, and uh, volunteer all the time. And uh-huh. wow, doesn't that make my day? That's great when they do that. I mean, <laughs> wow, I might as, you know, that's wow. It's wonderful when they do that. Um, the best way to do that is, you know, if you live somewhere locally, I'm trying so hard not to plug my own program right now. So just <laughs> No, you can't do that. Um, we have to support. That's, that's Juliana Miller at USC. <laughs> 
Um, you know, if you live close to a program, even within an hour's drive of a program, um, the, the people that, that set up practicum experiences are usually pretty easy to find. You know, go on to the website for the university, look up communication sciences and disorders. There's usually going to be a page with um, faculty members, um, and there's going to be somebody, um, you know, the um, clinical education director, something along those lines. If they're not the person that's scheduling practicum, they they most likely know who it is and how to get in touch with them. And um, and you can, you know, provide them with your contact information. Um, you'll probably need to provide them uh, with um, an administrator's um, contact information so that the affiliation agreement can be drawn up and things like that. But, um, you know, we, we love to get get people that are that are interested in supervising. And um, like I said, there's a real need out there. Especially for and your distance Sometimes it'll person. be us calling you. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking about that story you told us where you had to get a student a practicum and her island had a volcano erupting on it. <laughs> and, yeah. So. Yes. I had a student in um, that lived, you know, we have the distance program. So I had a student that lived... Um, on that island in Hawaii that's like having an eruption right now. Yes. That's where she lives. Yeah. And um, and we needed to get her to the other side of the island. And she couldn't drive, drive across the island because that's some kind of nature preserve and you can't drive in it. So she could either go the southern direction or the northern direction. But the southern direction had lava flowing over the road. So that's northern direction it was you for the wind friend that's like yeah I'm not allowed to complain the next ice storm how about that <laughs> oh gosh and I mean it was it was stuff like that all the time because it's kind of a rural um island you know there's we needed to for the student to get um experience with doing hearing screenings and that had to be with somebody that had C's and there was only one audiologist with C's that ever came to the island, but they were only there like three days a week. I mean, it just like went on and on. Um, oh. You know, if you ever see a, a person that's in charge of setting up practicum experiences for graduate students for, for pretty much any profession, you should just go up and give them a big hug. <laughs> <laughs> How about instead we buy you a glass of mommy juice? That, that would work too. Yes. <laughs> yes. That works too. That oh. works too. Oh, all right, friend. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for letting me pick your brain. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. <laughs> <laughs>